Last week was our missions conference, and uh, if you missed last week, you missed a great Sunday in the life of our church. Amen? It was fabulous. It was just so, so wonderful to have all of our missionaries here and to honor them and uh, to hear of the great things God is using them to do and for us to have the privilege of encouraging and blessing them uh, as they are out literally giving their lives away uh, on the field to uh, advance the kingdom of God. It was a great, great week. But we're going back to our study of the book of the Revelation. I'm in the middle Literally, right smack in the middle of a series entitled Game Over, and the final score is, uh, we're looking at uh, what the Apostle John, while he was on the Isle of Patmos, had to say about how this mess all ends. Would you agree with me that it's a mess? Would you agree with me that it seems to be getting to be a bigger mess all the time? Okay, so it's important for us to understand the outcome of this thing and how it all finishes. We need to do just a real, real quick review of chapter 11 where we left off two weeks ago. I I believe chapter 11 is speaking primarily about God's dealing with Israel in the last days. But as we've been saying every week, God is a multitasker, right? God is not one that can only do one thing at a time. He can do many things at the same time. He has one overall plan of salvation. That is grace through faith. In Christ Jesus and his work on the cross. But he's got two focus groups in that one plan, right? The Jews, Israel, his chosen people, his first covenant promise people, and then everybody else, all the rest of the Gentile world. This plan is unfolding as we watch history around us and as we work our way through the chapters of this book. One thing, though, that that I want to be clear and drive home as often as I can, as often as it fits... Chapter number 11 and various other places in this book point out the strong, and that's not too strong a word when I say strong, because it is a really strong anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish spirit that exists in this world today. It is a part of, I believe it's a part of the spirit of the Antichrist. Really? Yeah, really. First John talks about the fact that that spirit is already here. When John wrote First John, he said, that spirit's already here. So it's been with us for a long time. But folks, it is on the rise. It is on the increase. I don't care how you get your news, whether you read a paper or go online or watch TV or however you get your news, however you access news, keep an ear open and an eye open to this anti-Jewish, anti-Israel spirit that is more and more strongly every day pervading our world. Because it's a part of the enemy's plan. It's a part of the spirit of the Antichrist in these days in which we live. So, a couple verses I want to read out of chapter 11 because I think it gives us a time frame and a context for where we're heading next. So this will be Revelation chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Those two verses are possibly a reference to the rapture occurring at this point in the story. We have already looked at 
put up the next slide. We've looked at the first woe. That's the seven seals that represent the tribulation and the, the chaos and the calamity that's come upon the earth, upon the world. The second woe are the seven trumpets. That's chapters 8 and 9 that we've already looked at. The intensified tribulation and chaos and calamity that comes on the world. And for the last couple of them, it's very specified to be dealing with those who dwell upon the earth. And remember, that's synonymous for us? No, for unbelievers, for people who refuse to come to faith in Christ, for the rebellious. And then the third woe refers to the seven bowls of judgment. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 16. Very specifically talking about the wrath of God. Remember that the seventh seal seems to somehow unleash or open the seven trumpets. And then we'll see when we get there how the seventh trumpet seems to call forth these seven bowls of judgment. Um, When we read through this book, the book of the Revelation, we can't quite sort it all out and process it all in terms of, so when... When is it tribulation and when is it wrath exactly? And it, gosh, it seems to intermingle and there's a lot of overlap. We can't quite clearly distinguish at times the difference between the, the uh, tribulation and the wrath of God. But I want to say to you, God knows. Amen. And in God's mind and in God's heart, they are absolutely distinct. Tribulation is something we all face as people who live on this planet, even as Christians. When you became a Christian, if you thought or somebody told you that you were going to get a free pass when you gave your life to Jesus and tribulation would be no more, (laughs) they sold you a bill of goods. That's not how it works. But the wrath of God is something much more intense and very distinct from the tribulation that we all experience. It is going to come against those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ, those who refuse to repent, those who continue to live on in their rebellion. I want to say this again. Throughout this story, whether we're talking about the seals or the trumpets or the bowls or whatever, wherever we're at in this whole story, God's ultimate goal in the calamity and the chaos and the tribulation and the trials and everything that goes on is that people would repent. Don't ever lose sight of that. Even as we get further into this book and it gets more intense, yes, there's a point in time coming when it's too late. It's over. But throughout the course of this book, God's heart continues to be that people would repent. That all the adversity and calamity and disaster would cause them to come to Jesus. Well, I digress for a minute. I said earlier that uh, verses 14 and 15 could be a reference to the rapture occurring. Um, The seventh trumpet sounding, in terms of it being a reference to the second coming of Jesus and the rapture, where scholars take that is back to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I just want to read two verses for you out of chapter 4. These will be verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Many scholars believe that that trumpet of God is the seventh trumpet in the book of the Revelation. And the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Folks, I believe that if you, as I believe the book does, if you compress time in the Revelation from where we're at forward, it just all kind of unfolds, not quite simultaneously, but it's not this chronological timeline that we're 
we're so used to. It's not totally sequential. I believe it's a very real possibility that that seventh trumpet is the point in time when Jesus comes again. The language of chapter 11 goes on to say this. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. That's a reference, I believe, to the second coming. The the rest of this chapter really is a foreshadowing of what unfolds in the end. But it's little brief snippets and comments that get to that point. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came. That's chapters 16 through 18. And the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and those and to destroy those who destroy the earth. That's chapter 20 when we get to the great white throne of judgment. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and great hailstorm. That's reference to chapters 21 and 22. I can't wait to get to those two chapters. But we're not going to rush through this, okay? I'm not going to go, ah, forget that. Let's get to the good part. Because it's all the good part because it's the plan of God unfolding. Right? Okay. So if chapter 11 is to be seen as a synopsis, as kind of a, a preview of what's coming, then chapter 12 is the ultimate in review of what's happened. It's the ultimate in review of history. Actually, chapters 12, 13, and 14 are just that. It's as if the story is progressing along, and before we get to the final end of it all, God causes John to go all the way back to the start of the story and review it for us. Once again, remember that a couple of weeks ago, I I showed an illustration, a little clip of of how the fact that this is not like a timeline sequence, but it's more like a painting. And when an artist paints a picture, they paint over here and draw over here for a while, and then they move over to work on this part, and then they go back to that part. And then you have to wait till you get to the end to see the whole picture kind of develop before you. That is a classic example, illustration of what this part of the story is. John's been working over here, wherever here is, in the story and helping us see how it unfolds. And then all of a sudden he jumps over. It probably would have been better for me to go over here and then backwards. But he jumps over here to give us this this expansive review. Many scholars call chapters 12, 13, and 14 the book of signs. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But by that, they don't mean that it's a separate book. Okay, it's not like we got the revelation and then somebody later plopped chapters 12, 13, and 14 in the midst of it. No, it's, it's more like it's, it's a segue back into history. It's, it's another one of those interlude. It, it's an aside almost to explain for us, although God doesn't need to explain anything to us, does he? He can do whatever he well pleases, can't he? But you see, God in his wisdom and his perfect justice wants once again to go back and explain why these seven bowls of judgment have to come. And so keep that in mind as we look at chapters 12, 13, and 14. Very quickly about these three chapters, three things. First of all, these signs explain, amplify, and elaborate the previous chapters for us. And then they are a part of, excuse me, these signs part the curtain into the spirit world. As we look at these three chapters, you're going to see this is all about the cosmic battle that has been going on since the beginning of time. We wrestle, wrestle not against... Flesh and blood, right? 
Well, you're going to see that in these chapters. And then finally, these signs might be seen as a full review of, of church history. And probably I should even say even earlier than the history of the church. Basically, the picture painted in chapters 12 through 14 is one of struggle and conflict. It's a picture of warfare and spiritual battle. It's persecution and tribulation of God's people. Chapter 12 talks specifically, we'll see today, about the dragon, Satan, versus the woman and her child. That's representative of several different things we'll look at today. Chapter 13 is all about the beasts, plural, the Antichrist and the false prophet and his war with the saints. And then chapter 14 is the story of the redeemed, specifically the 144,000, the Jews being triumphant over the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet and the whole world system of represented by Babylon. So before we dig into chapter number 12, and I wish I could have you here for hours today because it works best to do them all in a row, but we can't do it that way. And so we're going to do the best we can. I want to give you a little reality check. How many of you know it's good sometimes to have a reality check? How many of you know sometimes life is tough? Use your other hand. There we go. Okay. Life is tough sometimes. And it's easy for us as Christians to go, why is this happening? Any of you confess to that little pity party that goes on in your... I'll confess to it. Here's a reality check, folks. These things, Jesus speaking, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. Next slide. Paul says this one, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then finally, if that news wasn't good enough, Jesus in speaking of the end times, then they will deliver you to tribulation. They'll kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. I'm waiting for somebody to write a chorus to that. That's probably not going to happen, is it? Any of you have that on your refrigerator? Didn't think so. That's reality though, folks, okay? So as we continue to work our way through this book, we have to understand that's how it is. But I also want to be very clear with you today. I don't share those verses and I don't share what I'm going to share today with you so that you develop an us versus them mentality. I say that because it's very easy for the church as it looks at the world, as it experiences tribulation and persecution, and as it watches the world drift further and further and further away from Christ to retreat and withdraw into the walls of the church and to start lobbing spiritual hand grenades over those walls to indict the world for being such pagan, evil, awful sinners. We cannot do that. We live in a day and an age when we are called not to regress inside the walls of the church and point fingers at the world for how awful, evil, and terrible they are. We live in a day when we are to be on the offensive. Not to be offensive, but to be on the offensive, to advance the kingdom of God. Folks, there is so much at stake, and I'm not predicting when the end is. But is it closer today than it was yesterday? And are things heating up and aligning up in the world so that the coming of Jesus doesn't look like it's, oh, it's a million years away? I'm making no predictions. But man, do we live in an exciting time. Amen? We live in a crucial time. And so even as we look at today, I want to make sure you do not develop one of those us versus them mentalities for self-protection. 
You understand tribulation is a part of the game. It's part of what we're called to. But it's not a call to retreat. Right? Okay. So in that context, I'd like you to stand, please. As we have, uh, Joyce Jenks is going to read chapter 12 for us today. So Joyce, if you'll come forward. She teased me this morning and said, I'm going to read this out of the Amplified Bible. And I said, you read out of the Amplified Bible, I'll never be able to explain everything it says in that version. So we stand to give honor to the word of God. Okay. So that's why Joyce, thanks for doing this for us. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who receives the whole world. He he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the, earth, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimonies of Jesus. Thanks, Joyce. All right, let's let's dig in here. Next slide. A great sign. Part of the reason why this is called the book of signs, this whole book is filled with signs and symbolism, right? We've been seeing that from chapter one on. But these are great signs. Literally, it says mega signs. 
Because what we're going to have unfold for us in the next couple chapters are just big show-stopping kind of, very important kind of signs. The woman, the mother of Messiah, probably not just a literal reference to Mary. It could include her, but the picture in this chapter is so much bigger than just one little events. Okay, John's showing something much bigger here. It's possibly a picture of Israel. Reason I say that is because Isaiah the prophet, when he writes in his book, especially in the last several chapters, when he's giving prophecies of the Messiah, he writes this in chapter 66, verse 7. Before she travailed, speaking of Israel, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Paul writes in Galatians 4.26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. What that means, what that's talking about. It's a picture of the people of the Messiah. I use that generic term because it refers not only to the Jews, the true Israel, the ones who come to faith in Christ, but it also refers to, to we, to us who were, thank you, who were grafted in, as Romans 11 talks about, okay? There's a connection in this picture, folks, that we always have to get between Israel and the church, and we can never lose sight of that connection. Pulling that connection apart is one of the ways that the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the world today. Great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain gave birth. To be clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars is just a picture, a reminder of the fact that even in the midst of tribulation and persecution, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the power of God stays upon his people. And it's easy sometimes for us to think if there's persecution, we must be doing something wrong. If there's tribulation, what happened? Where's God? This is to remind us that Tribulation is normal. Persecution is normal. The glory of God still rests upon you, even if you find yourself in a difficult spot. Right? You better write that one down, because if we're living in a time when life's going to get tougher, not easier, going back to that one will be very, very helpful. That's the picture being painted here. Yes, the woman. Yes, God's people. Yes, the church. Yes, covenant Israel. They're going to experience some tough things, but they're still clothed with the presence, the honor, the glory, the power of God in the midst of all that. The, the 12 stars could be a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel and or the 12 apostles. Again, I think it's that interweaving of God's plan for Israel, God's plan for his church. This woman is in labor. She's about to give birth. Not so much a reference to Jesus being born, Matthew 1 or Luke chapter 1. It's more about the cosmic struggle that has existed throughout history for God's people to, to, to survive, to grow, and to triumph in the midst of persecution and adversity and tribulation and difficulties. This battle was prophesied by God himself. When sin came into the world in the Garden of Eden, God was not freaked out and panicked. I've said this to you before. He didn't look at, at the Son and the Holy Spirit and go, Now what? God had this all under control. He knew it was going to happen and he had a plan from the beginning. And he revealed part of that plan to us in chapter 3 of Genesis. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. 
Here it is. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. And literally, in many versions, it says he shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. From the beginning, God said there's going to be conflict. There's going to be this titanic cosmic battle and struggle that goes on. Is this a tug of war that's even, Stephen, and there's no clear winner? There's a clear winner. God himself has promised the victory. Then another great sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 9 specifically says that that dragon is Satan, so we know who's being talked about here. Having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. That middle part about the tail sweeping away a third of the stars, I believe, is reference to Satan's fall. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 talk about that. And a third of the stars represent the angels that fell with him. Lucifer was an archangel, one of the higher angels. But a third of the other angels went along with his rebellion against God. And they, they fell. They were, they were kicked out of heaven. But this scripture is all about each of these descriptive phrases. Seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems are descriptions of the counterfeit persona that the devil wants to display to the world. How many of you know he's a liar? He's a deceiver. He's a counterfeiter. That's who he is at the core of his being. When he portrays himself as having seven heads, and when John portrays him as having seven heads, seven is the number of perfection. And this is the boast that the devil makes of having excessive power. Ten horns. That's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. We've looked there already. It's a symbol of his great might. And then these seven diadems, these seven crowns. A diadem was a different kind of crown. A diadem was the crown that a conquering king wore. And so when we're at this point in the story, the devil is wanting to present himself as having perfect power, absolute authority, complete control, and great might over the circumstances of the world. Man, that looks bad. It does look bad. It's not the end of the story. And the devil does have power. And sometimes it just, it just, I don't know what it does, but it bugs me when Christians say, oh, you know, he roars like a lion, but he ain't got any teeth. He can't do anything. That ain't the devil I fight with all the time. He still does have power, folks. Okay? This, this story isn't complete yet, and, and he has not been once and for all and forever banished to his eternal destiny. He still has power, but he's not winning. Oh, what a time to say amen. He's not winning. It's not over. It may look like he's winning in some areas, but he is not winning. The victory has been assured. Christ has won that victory for us. Let me set the record straight. He may, may pose himself as having seven diadems. He's the perfect conqueror. He's this supposed conquering king. But ultimately, he is going to have to face the one who shows up in chapter 19 that it says this about. 
Speaking of Jesus, his eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head aren't seven diadems, are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Later on in that chapter, in verse 16, he is described as the one called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The devil is a poser. I want a ringside seat when the one with... 7, 10, and 7 faces off against this one, coming with many diadems, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's like going to a chain fight and taking a rope. (laughs) The devil is so outnumbered, so vastly overpowered in this whole thing. I'm so glad I'm on his side, God's side, aren't you? You know, a little aside, when I taught this in Haiti, and there are few places in the world that have experienced as much tribulation and persecution and difficulties as the nation of Haiti. When I taught this section of the book, the room erupted. They went nuts. You guys, not so much, but they went nuts. To think of coming out of this tribulation and persecution that has been their life. Let's face it, it's been their life. When they think of Jesus coming again on that horse to defeat this, this dragon, this serpent, this devil, the room just went crazy. He may look like he's winning, the devil that is, but ultimately, there's no way. Okay, put the next slide back up, verses 3 and 4. So, we know the enemy's ultimate outcome, don't we? But it doesn't deter him from the mission that he's on. He is trying to thwart the plan of God. He is trying to devour the child. Now, I think that's got a couple meanings also. If you want to apply that to Jesus, I think it's clear when you read, read the book that that's, that was the mission of the enemy through King Herod. He, he ascertained when this Messiah was born and when and had all the babies around that age killed to try and snuff him out. When Jesus went to Nazareth, they didn't like what he had to say. They tried to throw him off a cliff to kill him. The cross was the enemy's (laughs) ultimate thinking that he'd won. Wasn't counting on the resurrection, I guess. Read throughout the book. There was plan to destroy even the bloodline that Jesus would come through. Moses had a very similar experience, like King Herod to all those babies. Moses was supposed to be killed. David was almost killed by Saul. That's the bloodline through which Jesus came. Esther with Haman. And on and on and on it goes. The devil's plan has always been to devour the child. He doesn't win. Doesn't stop him though. Verses 5 and 6. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is a clear biblical reference to Jesus, folks. There are several scriptures that refer specifically to that. One of them is in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall scatter them like earthenware. And then later in the Revelation, we'll look at this again in more detail. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's not God's plan for his people, his children. That's God's plan for the dwellers of the earth, for the people who do not believe, for the people who do not come to faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. 
So again, in, in the context of what this scripture is talking about, it's not just about the birth of Jesus or the story of Jesus throughout his lifetime. It's a curtain opening up to show us again this cosmic battle that has gone on from the beginning of time. Next slide. She will give birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that, there would, so that she would be nourished. I think Joyce's version said for a time, times, and half a time. This version says for 1,260 days. It's three and a half years. This child being caught up to God isn't so much about Jesus being resurrected as, again, it's a picture of God's protection on the life of Christ and the mission of Christ and on his church. You're going to be here. I'm going to be here. The church is going to be here until God says your work here is done. Nothing is going to take us out. Nothing can take us out. Unless you think this is a cosmic tug of war on even terms and we still don't know who wins. We win! And God, in his sovereignty and goodness, has this plan all figured out even when it looks bad or terrible. So this child being caught up to God, this woman uh, being taken out into the wilderness and nourished is a picture of the church of Israel being victorious even in the midst of this tribulation and trial and suffering. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Again, the story is not timeline sensitive. It's not timeline sequential. And it can refer to several things all in the same phrase. I think, yes. Yes, this does refer to the original fall of Satan. I told you, go home and read Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 if you want to know more. But I think it also includes the ongoing, never ending until the end, wrestle and battle. Michael, mentioned here, is the guardian angel of Israel. Go read the book of Daniel. You'll see Michael has a special role in the life of Israel. So Israel is in excuse me, is indeed included in this story. But this story includes the ultimate throwdown. God is going to take the enemy. He's thrown him down already, but he's going to throw him down once and for all and forevermore in the finality of this story. Oh, maybe we should just jump ahead to chapter 19 and 20. What do you say? <laughs> Go home and read it on your own if this is making you nervous, okay? Because it's, it's a secured victory. So it could include the original fall of Satan and this ongoing battle and wrestle where God's kingdom continues to advance, where God's people continue to move forward. But ultimately, the ultimate throwdown is found in the cross. Look at what the book of Colossians says. I love this scripture. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and that's talking about every one of us prior to Jesus. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. In other words, that's the law and the fact that we could not keep the commandments of God. It declared us sinners. 
He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus. Folks, that right there is the ultimate throwdown. When we read in chapter 12 about this ongoing battle in heaven, this spiritual conflict and warfare, the ultimate throwdown is defined right there in Colossians chapter 2. Jesus made a public display of his enemies. It's as if he pulled their pants down and shamed and embarrassed them publicly for what they were not. And you're probably thinking, I never thought my pastor would talk like that in church, but it's a, it's a good picture of this, this absolute shame and embarrassment that the enemy, I'm winning, I'm going to be prideful thing that he is being shamed in the end. The blood of the lamb on the cross satisfied both God's need for justice and it regained authority lost by mankind. When sin entered the world in the garden, we usurped, usurped authority to the devil and said, here you go, it's yours. Jesus won it back. Now we just have to continue to learn how to appropriate it and walk in it and, and, and claim it as our own. But folks, don't be confused for one minute. It's not this tug of war. It's God. All authority is his, given to us through Christ. And then it's archangels, plural, Michael included, Gabriel and the boys, against Satan, Lucifer. So he's outnumbered. And then it's under them are, are angels and demons. And it's two to one. A third of the stars fell. Do the math. How many are still left on God's side if a third fell? Oh, wow. And it's so early in the morning. That's right. We win. Okay. Let's keep going. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Um, The great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels thrown down with him. Devil means accuser, slanderer. Satan means your adversary. Deceiver is his job description. It's what he does. He was thrown down, not just to a new location on earth. It also implies the fact that his works were defeated on the cross and eventually they will be totally totally null and void at the second coming of Jesus. We live, Rob and I learned this in seminary, we live in this already not yet tension. Jesus came, paid the price on the cross, so it's already finished, but it's not yet totally consummated and fulfilled. And and during what's called the church age, we live in this place where we continue to wrestle this thing out and advance the kingdom. It's not quite fully 100% forever for all time finished, And yet it is finished. The price has been paid. The work has been done. It's just a matter of seeing it. It's like the picture was taken, but it's still in the process of being developed. Do you have to go back and retake the picture? No, you just have to wait for it to be developed. That's kind of the place in which we find ourselves, okay? Okay? Okay. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. That scripture speaks to this already not yet tension in which we live. 
this loud voice, I think it's symbolic of the fact that God has all power and all authority. It's not some little milquetoast voice declaring this thing. It says to us, it's over. That's why it's a loud voice. Now, the salvation, the power, the kingdom, his authority have come. And yet it hasn't come in its fullness quite yet. The accuser and his accusations have lost their power. Now, our job is to start appropriating that, start believing that as the truth. Has the devil stopped accusing you? (laughs) Hasn't stopped accusing me? He's not going to stop that until he's bound and gagged once and for all and thrown in the lake of fire. Okay? But the onus is on me and on you to stop listening to those accusations and to put them in the place where they belong as untruth, as condemnation, as something we don't have to listen to. Well, it doesn't do any good just to... I don't have to listen to you. That's never shut him up. I don't have to listen to you. It never shuts him up. We have to stop listening to him, not expect him to shut up. We have to appropriate this truth for victory. We have to walk under the full encompassing power of the shed blood of Jesus for our victory. We have to receive its power by faith. We have to stand in the word of our testimony. Folks, that's talking about confessing, saying to ourselves and to each other, the truth of God's word, chapter and verse, and the truth of our personal story. You see, God's victory in my life hasn't been written, will never be written in the Bible, but that's a part of the word of my testimony. And you have one of those too. And we need to to know and, and have the word of God firmly implanted in us so we stand in that truth. But we also, the word of our testimony means, we have a story to tell of how Jesus saved us, redeemed us, and is helping us walk in greater victory. Amen? That's a part of how you overcome. And then finally... And this is the one that the church in America does not like at all. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. You see, a part of your victory comes when you don't care if you live or die. You're not going to deny Jesus. And you see, when you come to that point, death loses a power. It loses its grip. It doesn't have a power over you. Hebrews talks about how people who have been enslaved their whole lives to the fear of death. And I, I know Christians who are terrified to die. We need to come to a point where we say, I don't, I don't want to die. I'm not going, hey, can I be next to be crucified, persecuted? Take me. I don't mind being at the back of that line. But what I'm saying is we can't live in this fear. We can't love our lives here on this earth that much. When we get to that point, the devil loses so much of his power. This is a big picture, eternal perspective. And church, I want to say to you today, we have to gain that perspective if we don't have it in the days in which we live. Because it ain't going to get any easier or nicer around here. Okay, we've got to finish up this chapter. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. Because of the victory just talked about, the victory in Jesus, we rejoice. We celebrate that victory. Not yet culminated in its fullness, but we hang on and we celebrate that. It's been assured. But the dwellers of the earth, those who will not bow their knee, those who refuse to come to faith, refuse to, uh, to repent, woe awaits you. 
You see, the, the devil is like the Nazis or the Axis powers in World War II. Any historian will tell you that once Nor- the invasion of Normandy happened, D-Day, once that was accomplished, the war was assured as over. The Allied forces were assured of victory. But when you study history, some of the most intense battle took place after Normandy because the enemy refused to face the inevitable. And so the, the fighting was, was brutal and, and horrible. It's the same way in the spiritual world, in the spiritual realm, folks. Christ's death on the cross did not cause the devil to go, it's over, I'm done. He fights all the harder. He will, absolutely, 100% guaranteed, will finally once and for all be defeated and overthrown. But he's not yet been absolutely destroyed and his final doom hasn't been sealed. So he fights full force to the bitter end. Why? Because he's so proud. That was his downfall to begin with. I'm going to be like God. It's that pride that causes him to refuse to admit the reality of the truth. I got a phone call from a a friend this week who's been listening to this series uh, with his wife um, online. And he said, Ken, I got a question for you. Okay. Why did God allow this? Why when, when Satan fell, whenever that was in heaven, why didn't God just put an end to him right then and there? And I pondered that for a moment and I just, I came up with, I'll just say it, a brilliant answer. I said, I wish I had a drum roll. I don't know. I don't know. But I know this, God is sovereign and God is good. And God has a plan that is unfolding. And as verse 1 of chapter 1 told us, these things must take place. So I'm just not going to argue with God. I don't know why. And if you think you know why, you don't know why. Nobody knows why. But God, we do know this. God is good. Amen. God is sovereign. Amen. It may look bad, but we win. That I know. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. The woman, again, is a combination of of Israel and the church. I think it includes both of those. This great eagle, I think, is a picture of the Holy Spirit or God's ministering angels or both that is going to take care of God's people for however long we're here, for however bad it gets. Okay? It's very interesting. Exodus 19.4 uses very similar language as God talks to his people about taking care of them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. That's referring specifically to the Red Sea parting and then unparting when they were in the middle of it. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. And brought you to myself. Isaiah 40, 31. Yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Folks, it's a perfect picture of God's sovereign protection. His empowerment in the midst of struggles and tribulations and difficulties. God is in the middle of all that. The promise is, I will see you through. Not, I will provide a detour around that so you never have to go through any difficulties. 
Is that your story? That's my story. It's not a promise of a, of, of a skate, a walk in the park through this life. God is going to see us through no matter how bad it might get. Even if you're martyred, and I don't wish that on you, me, or anybody, death is the ultimate victory, isn't it? If you have an eternal perspective, oh, gosh, he died and went to heaven. What a shame. What? <laughs> death is the ultimate victory. The war is won even in death. The war is won, and you're victorious. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. I believe that represents, it's symbolic of a flood of words. Uh, flood water is symbolic of destruction. The devil is the prince and the power of the air, is he not? And there is a flood of words out there. He is on full attack in terms of the message he's broadcasting all over this world about evil triumphing and the church being ridiculed and demeaned and God's people uh, experiencing awful, terrible things. That's the flood. When the enemy comes like a flood, God raises up a standard. I would encourage you today, watch what you listen to. Watch how much time you spend listening to how bad and awful and evil it is out there. Because I don't know about you, but it bums me out at times. I just get sad. I get angry. And that's not the right focus. I'm not saying stick your head in the sand. Just for however much bad you hear, always go back to the truth of God's word. And remember that. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Again, a reiteration at the beginning of that verse of the war, the conflict that we're in. The devil is enraged. He hates the church. He hates Israel. Does that surprise anybody? It shouldn't. But in the midst of this reiteration of the conflict, this chapter ends with this great reminder about our victory. We win, we assure victory when we keep the commandments of God. That's not talking about obedience to the law, some legalistic adherence to all the rules and regulations. But obedience is the key, folks, to victory. And I'm talking about a Holy Spirit, grace-filled, grace-empowered, Jesus, I can't obey, but your spirit in me can help me obey kind of lifestyle. A surrender to the will of God, not bucking up and do this yourself. There is such an onslaught to the importance of the obedience of God's word in the world and even in the church. There is a theology developing that so emphasizes the grace of God and, and the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God. It's as if to say obedience doesn't even matter anymore. I will, to my dying day, say to you that obedience to the word of God is so important. Not legalistically, not come on, do better, but by the grace of God to let the spirit of God empower us to walk in victory and obedience. You hear teaching out there that tells you that it's all about grace and obedience doesn't matter. Don't walk, run from that kind of teaching. It's from the pit of hell. I'm sure that made me popular. <laughs> obedience to the, to the word of God, to the will of God is even mocked. I mean, the world mocks Christians. They hate people who think obedience is important. 
We sang a song this morning, we want more of you, God. The world's theme song is we want less of you, God. Get out of here. We don't like you. We don't want you in our, in our lives. Get out. You can't let that overpower you or overwhelm you, or you can't think that that is the prevailing dominant attitude that's going to exist. Remember that guy in chapter 19 that's coming back with the many diadems? He'll fix that one, don't you worry. So we keep the commandments of God, but number two, we hold to the testimony of Jesus. We believe the truth of what Jesus said and promised, what he has done and what he will do in you, to you, and through you. Because he's not just interested in spiffing you up and cleaning you up and making you all perfect for heaven. There's a work for you to do. God wants you to be about that business. So you keep the commandments and you hold to the testimony of Jesus. If you don't know what the testimony of Jesus is, that means you don't spend enough time in this book. And you're not going to get it coming and listening to me or picking it up from songs that speak the truth. You need to be in this book. For those of you listening online, I'm pointing to the Bible. You, You need to be in the Word of God. That's how you'll know what the testimony of Jesus is. That's how you'll know what the commandments God's God expects you to obey and keep are. There is no shortcut to this, okay? None. No shortcut to walking by faith. But folks, it is a key to the victory that we need in the days in which we live. Don't put the next slide up quite yet. The next slide is not chapter and verse straight from Scripture, but it's true and it is taken from the testimony of Jesus. I'm not putting words in his mouth. I'm not trying to rewrite Scripture or add to Scripture. Lord knows I've read the, read the end of Revelation and people who do that are in big trouble. But when you watch these next things pop up, I want you to see if they don't fall under the umbrella of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Okay? It's kind of a summary statement of what chapter 12 and life as we know it boils down to. Life is hard. Right? God is good. Don't quit. Because we win. I've said this other little statement to you on numerous occasions. You can't lose if you don't quit. The only way that you can lose is if you check out and quit and say, it's not worth it, I give up. You cannot lose if you don't quit. So let me pray for you and I'll let you go home. I got a little carried away today, but I just can't help myself, okay? I'm excited about this because it may look nasty and bad, but... But we win, and we need that kind of encouragement in the midst of the battles. So close your eyes for just a minute, and I want, to th- I want you to think about one of those places where your life is hard, or somebody that you know and love has a life right now that's hard, whether it's persecution or tribulation or whatever it might be. See that thing. Name it. Call it what it is. And give it to Jesus. Because even though life is hard, God is good. And God wants to help you with that thing, whatever that thing is. My encouragement to you today is don't quit. You may feel like quitting. I feel like quitting all the time. You know what the difference is? I don't. So it's not about feeling like quitting. It's about not quitting. Because we win. Because we're on the side of the one who is coming on that white horse. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus. 
Father, bless your church today. Everyone in this room, I'm sure, thought of something where life is hard. Because life is hard. Let that not be our consuming focus. Let us focus rather on how good you are, how sovereign you are. And give us the grace not to quit, because ultimately we know the prize is victory. Help us see the big picture, the final result. Bless you today, God, for your word, for the encouragement, the power of your Holy Spirit. Even as Rob shared that word out of First Peter earlier, what a, what a hand in glove that is. And we bless you for the truth of your word, the testimony of the Lord Jesus as to his victory and our victory because of him. In his name we pray. Amen.